This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Josh Hammer, and this is America on Trial, your one-stop shop for all of your legal news coming to you daily, Monday through Friday, in bite-sized, easily digestible fashion. Before we go on to our Around the Horn segment, just a quick note that I'm actually speaking at CPAC later today. I will be at the CPAC conference outside Washington, D.C. this afternoon. My panel is on a topic totally unrelated to our topic on this show. It is on on-campus anti-Semitism, but come up and say hi. Try and find me if you are a listener of this show, America on Trial, if you will be at CPAC later today. Would love to meet some of the listeners. Would love to hear from you, some thoughts, some feedback. What could we be doing better? What could we be changing or amending? We're early on in the show here, less than a month since we launched this thing on January 29th. Really eager to hear from our listeners. So please do come and say hi if you're going to be at CPAC later today. With that said, let's dive right into our Around the Horn segment. Looking at our legal calendar here, we are expecting this Friday on February 23rd. This is the deadline out in Illinois for a circuit court, a state court there in Illinois, to issue a written decision on Illinois' own internal 14th Amendment so-called insurrection clause challenge. And I say all that not because it's particularly interesting. If I had to hazard a guess, the state courts there in Illinois typically, as you would guess, are very left-leaning. And they're probably going to come out against Donald Trump, similarly to what happened in the state of Colorado, and probably going to deny him access to the ballot. The reason I say all that is because I think that every state that continues to rack up these ridiculous rulings and tries to interpret the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause, as we are calling it these days, in, se in, in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, every state that starts going down this rabbit hole of having state administrators, state court judges— start to interpret this thing, it's really only going to expedite the Supreme Court justice's decision. In the Trump versus Anderson case, they took that appeal from Colorado, and we heard oral argument about two weeks ago now. We are hopefully going to get an opinion there sooner rather than later. The fact that Illinois is coming up with an opinion right here on this week of all weeks probably will force the Supreme Court's hand sooner rather than later, I would think. Again, the only question there is whether it's going to come out 9-0 or 8-1. to There's really no doubt as to whether Donald Trump is going to prevail. He will remain on the ballot, the 14th Amendment, Section 3 challenge notwithstanding. Another thing that I've been thinking about over the past 24 hours or so, speaking of Trump's legal battles, I, I really just can't get over something that we talked about on the show couple days ago or so, which was the fact that E. Jean Carroll's lawyer was on Jen Psaki's MSNBC show, I think it was Monday evening, and was talking about how he might advise her, his client, E. Jean Carroll, to take a third shot at the apple when it comes to suing Donald Trump for defamation. I mean, what in the world? Like, seriously, I just can't get over this. What in the world? We have reached the point in society where a man repeatedly refusing to bend the knee and to say that this woman who claims that he harassed, assaulted, raped, whatever her, we've reached a point where simply denying false allegations of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and rape 
somehow makes you liable for defamation. It, it, it's absolutely just unbelievable. I mean, if it makes me think back to the early 1990s, back during the great Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court confirmation hearing, when he was denying similar allegations of workplace sexual harassment from Anita Hill. I mean, really? I mean, were people back then talking about suing Clarence Thomas for 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 defamation because he had the temerity to defend himself. Well, they've I mean they've accused Clarence Thomas of a lot of awful things over the years, not least of which is the repeated left wing criticism, disgusting criticism at that that he is a so called Uncle Tom. But I don't really remember reading about defamation. I mean, I'm not sure when it became defamatory for a man to defend himself against false allegations of sexual assault and sexual harassment. What a time to be alive. I continue to think that Donald Trump is going to prevail on appeal there. They won't necessarily overturn the verdict in its entirety, but there's just simply no way that that $65 million in punitive damages is going to stand there. As we said on our very first show of America on trial last month, there is a Supreme Court case from 1996 called BMW of North America versus Gore, where the court basically held that excessive punitive damages violate so-called substantive due process of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, not necessarily a particularly conservative ruling, I guess you would say, and any time that you're reading policy disputes into so-called substantive due process doctrine, but it is the law of the land, as the leftists and the liberals like to say, so I do like Donald Trump's chances on appeal there. Just yesterday on Wednesday, another bit of legal news, you had Joe Biden issue this additional $1.2 billion in student debt relief for nearly 153 thousand borrowers or so across the country. It's part of his new loan repayment program for those who initially borrowed $12,000 or less and have been repaying their debt for at least 10 years. That summary from the Politico article on this topic there. Haven't heard a lot of chatter thus far in right-wing legal circles about a possible legal challenge to it. Note that this is by orders of magnitude, substantially smaller than when Biden tried to do this under the HEROES Act, a piece of post-9-11 legislation that really had nothing whatsoever to do with student debt relief or COVID. They tried to really fit an elephant into a mouse hole, to borrow the old line from Justice Anthony Scalia about how you do not go about trying to interpret a federal statute, a U.S. constitutional provision, and that, sure enough, was what the court held when they denied last term Joe Biden's previous attempt at mass student debt relief. This is just a heck of a lot smaller. Again, it's $1.2 billion, way, way, way lower than the hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that was in the plan that the Supreme Court ultimately nullified last year. We will see if any of the right-wing activist groups go ahead and do so. But as of now, I'm not hearing a whole lot about that from my legal circles. One other thing I want to touch on before we go to our deep dive today, there's continued fallout. We're still talking about what's possibly going to happen when it comes to the Justice Arthur and Goron penned verdict that came last Friday when it comes to so-called fraud against Donald Trump and the Trump organization. $354 million, 354 to 355 again against Trump and the Trump organization combined an additional $4 million in individual Liability damages apiece for the two sons, Eric and Donald Trump Jr., another million for Alan Weisselberg, getting you up to about $364 million in damages or so with backdated interest payments. That thing's going up by almost another $100 million. You're talking about $460-ish million. It just absolutely bonkers, insane stuff here, to say nothing of the other parts of this opinion that have nothing to do with monetary damages where Trump and his sons are barred 
from serving as an officer in a corporation in New York State for XYZ number of years. Absolutely crazy stuff there. But one immediate question that comes to mind is, does Donald Trump have the cash to start paying this down? And he doesn't have to fork it all over tomorrow. He obviously can appeal, but he's going to have to start forking some over. They'll go into escrow, and it can always be clawed back if he ends up prevailing in toto. But where is he going to get this cash from? And it's not obvious. The Trump organization is structured in a certain way where they obviously have a lot of illiquid assets. They have properties. They have golf courses. They have resorts. They, they have this. Donald Trump's net worth. This is a, an infamous topic of debate is how much is Donald Trump worth. Forbes magazine had it estimated at between 2 to $3 billion as of this past fall. But a lot of that is illiquid worth. A lot of that is illiquid funds. So how exactly is he going to cobble together this money? It's not clear. That, that brings us to what Tish James, the attorney general of New York State, is talking about here. She is now openly speculating openly speculating about petitioning a court to seize some of Donald Trump's landmark buildings if he can't actually get the cash there. She is telling the media that she is prepared to seize iconic Trump properties like 40 Wall Street, that she would have no compunction whatsoever about trying to get Arthur and Goron to have Trump hand over properties like 40 Wall Street, a very famous building in downtown Manhattan, just handing it over to New York State. This is what Tish James said. She said, quote, we are prepared to make sure that the judgment is paid to New Yorkers. And yes, I look at 40 Wall Street each and every day. I, I mean, what do you say about this? When you have a public official who ran for office on a quintessentially Stalinist platform that she was running for office to get Trump. She said it on the campaign trail. She pursued it every day since she got to office and she's done it. Not only has she done it, but she is bragging publicly and openly about, quote, seeking judgment, enforcement mechanisms in court, and we will ask the judge to seize his assets. Talk about handing over iconic Trump skyscrapers. I look at it every day, says Tish James. Banana Republic stuff. I, 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 sometimes I, I scratch my head and I say, how is, this, how, how is this real life where a presidential candidate is being attempted to be bankrupted to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, banned from serving in a corporation in the very state where he made his entire name. It is obvious, beyond shadow of a doubt, election interference, to use the term of the day, there is not an iota. There's not a morsel of doubt in my mind about that. Tish James goes on and says, quote, financial frauds are not victimless crimes. Trump engaged in this massive amount of fraud. Who, who, again, who was the victim here? Deutsche Bank, who is one of the very sophisticated financial counterparties for the Trump organization. They made a very nice profit when it came to their loans to the Trump organization. In fact, Deutsche Bank, according to the reports that I read, their only regret was that they couldn't do even more business with Trump. So again, who exactly is the victim here? But man, that headline where Tish James is bragging about trying to petition the court to hand over 40 Wall Street. I mean, what are you going to hand over next? You're going to hand over Donald Trump's bedroom, his toilet, his gilded toilet? You, you want that, Tish James? Give me a freaking break. It, it's just garbage, banana republic, truly, truly Stalinist, show me the man, I will find you the crime sort of crap. Man, we have a ways to go to pull ourselves out of this rabbit hole here in 21st century America. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For today's deep dive, I, I want to talk about something that is not directly related to the 2024 election, but has still been quite a legal controversy over the past few days. And this was an opinion from the Alabama Supreme Court from February 16th from this past Friday that has really been reverberating. The people are very much still talking about that we are still having the fallout of. And it's it's a consolidated case where you have LePage would be two of the plaintiffs, and then the Isens, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, are two of the other plaintiffs there. And they are suing the Center for Reproductive Medicine, which is essentially an IVF facility there in the state of Alabama where they have cryogenic nurseries and things like that. And the basic fact pattern here is that the IVF facility did did not properly secure their own facility because in December 2000, a patient at the at the underlying hospital, the Mobile Infirmary Medical Center in Mobile, Alabama, you had, according to the fact pattern here, the majority opinion written by Justice Jay Mitchell, who was an absolutely fantastic stalwart jurist there on the Alabama Supreme Court, really look out for him in the future. According to his recitation of the facts here, quote, in December 2020, a patient at the hospital managed to wander into the center's fertility clinic through an unsecured doorway. The patient then entered the cryogenic nursery and removed several embryos. The sub-zero temperatures at which the embryos have been stored freeze-burned the patient's hand, causing the patients to drop the embryos on the floor, killing them. So this fertility clinic, this IVF clinic, basically did not secure their own facility. A patient wanders in, tries to take embryos out because it's literally sub-zero temperatures, drops it, embryos dead. Plaintiffs bring suit on wrongful death claims. And That is the legal question that was presented before the Alabama Supreme Court here, is whether Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act, a piece of legislation that goes all the way back to 1872, as to whether this covers unborn childs not in the uterus, as to whether it includes, in this case, embryos. So we will start with the text of the statute there, and again, as as brought to us by Justice Jay Mitchell in his very straightforward and very persuasive opinion, an opinion with which I can hardly see how anyone, if we're be trying to be even remotely objective legal analysts here, could even possibly try to, to disagree with this. The statute, the Wrongful Death of a Minor Act, allows the parents of a deceased child to bring a claim seeking punitive damages, quote, when the death of a minor child is caused by the wrongful act, omission, or negligence of any person as long as they do so within six months of the child's passing. That would be the statute of of limitations there. The first legal question is, what is a child? What does it actually mean to be a child? Well, the wrongful death of a minor act in Alabama does not define that, but the Alabama Supreme Court has repeatedly held that an unborn child 
and a, quote, minor child necessarily also includes an unborn child. This has been decided in Alabama for a very long time. So this, this opinion right now is not necessarily charting any new water. Here is a case from 2012 in Alabama called Hamilton versus Scott. Quote, Alabama's wrongful death statute allows an action to be brought for the wrongful death of any unborn child. Pretty straightforward stuff there. Justice Mitchell then goes ahead and cites many of the leading dictionaries still currently in use. To, he cites them for the proposition that child does absolutely include unborn children. Here is Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. They say that a child includes a, quote, unborn or recently born person. You have the Oxford English Dictionary, which defines a, quote, child as a, quote, unborn or newly born human being, a fetus or an infant. Webster's third, exactly the same thing, defines a, quote, child as a, quote, unborn or recently born human being. I could go on and on here. The point is that the Alabama Supreme Court, as a matter of their own docket, has gone ahead and adopted this term, this definition of what it means to be a, a child there. Neither of the parties in this case actually contest that the statute, the wrongful death statute, includes unborn children. Rather, the defendants, the, the clinic, the IVF clinic that failed to secure itself and led to this tragic accident, they argue that there is an exception, that even though it's not codified into the statute, that there is an implicit exception or the judges should read into the statute an exception whereby not just children in utero but children unborn child, unborn children that is outside of the uteri should somehow not fall under the protection of the statute. So we're really talking here about embryos in the process of IVF. But, the, but there's no reason for a judge to go about and do that. There is no, no reason whatsoever other than pure pro-choice, pro-abortion style public policy concerns. On the contrary, as Justice Mitchell's opinion and many of the concurrent opinions note, there is actually an express amendment to the Alabama Constitution passed just two years ago in 2022, a human life amendment that, quote, acknowledges, declares, and affirms that it is the public policy of this state of Alabama to ensure the protection of the rights of the unborn child in all manners and measures lawful and appropriate. So this is not a difficult case of statutory interpretation for the reasons we just said. Child includes unborn child. There is no indication that the drafters of the statute meant to exclude extra uterine unborn children, those not in the uterus, therefore it does include them. But to make it even clearer, you have then this explicit amendment, the Alabama Constitution, that literally provides a rule of construction, a rule of interpretation for judges to, to err on the side of human life. That is exactly what they are saying there. That is the entire reason that the state of Alabama adopted this amendment to the Constitution in 2022, namely that legislators in the legislature and judges in the state courts would guide their decisions, their lawmaking, and their law interpreting decisions through the analytical prism, through the lens of this affirmation of human life. And again, it's, just, it's really just not a controversial opinion. I understand that people have very hard-charging public policy views one way or the other when it comes to whether an embryo should be considered a human life, about in vitro fertilization and what IVF does and does not include. Does IVF actually include the willful destruction of embryos? Well, it turns out it typically does, actually, tragically. And you actually have, in one of the concurring opinions, a fantastic concurring opinion from Chief Justice Tom Parker. Wow, this is one heck of a concurrence. He goes ahead and he cites lots of 
non-American examples as to laws that would prudentially limit, that would prudentially limit in vitro fertilization to one embryo at a time. He cites Australia and New Zealand as but one example there. And, you know, more generally speaking, the, the beauty of Chief Justice Parker's opinion is that he analyzes what the term sanctity of unborn life means because the Alabama constitutional amendment in 2022 that had this affirmation of the right to life is colloquially referred to sometimes as the quote sanctity of unborn life amendment the term sanctity is in the very words of the amendment it is the public policy of the state to recognize and support the sanctity of unborn lives chief justice parker in this special concurrence goes ahead and he analyzes what the term sanctity means what sanctity means and it's really, really good stuff. You really should go ahead and just read it for yourself there. He goes all the way back to Genesis, to Genesis one twenty seven. God made man in his image, male and female. He created him. He created them. And it, there's just a lot of biblical verses that flow through this. There are some citations of some of the great religious commentators, some of the great theologians, some of the great legal commentators. Sir William Blackstone is in here. He famously wrote his commentaries on the laws of England. Back in 1775, Blackstone was the most cited of all of the legal experts for the generation of American founders there. He famously began the very, very first treatise, the very beginning of his entire commentaries on the laws of England, the great attempt to codify the common law. Blackstone famously began by talking about the rights of the unborn. Blackstone wrote, quote, life is the immediate gift of God, a right inherent by nature in every individual. And, you know, you've seen so many on the left who have looked at this opinion, the concurring opinion from Chief Justice Parker, that is, well, it ends really beautifully, actually, with a, another biblical citation. There is a, there is a quote from, from Jeremiah here, quote, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. It's a beautiful, beautiful Bible quote, a, a quote from Jeremiah, so shared by both Jews and Christians alike there. And you have a lot of leftists who are freaking out about both this majority opinion and the concurrence. They're saying, oh, we live in a theocracy. It's Christian nationalism or something like that or any other number of, of, of fear-mongering things and, and screams and belly aches that you hear from all of the usual suspects here. Look, if you want in vitro fertilization to be massive in Alabama— then go ahead and statutorily codify in the legislature a form of it that does not involve the mass destruction of embryos. You see some people talking about how this is going to disincentivize family formation. Well, no, it's not. Because again, other countries around the world have now pioneered models whereby in vitro fertilization does not involve the willful destruction of mass human life. So there are lots of other ways to go about doing this. On the contrary, think about this. From an ex-ante, as we lawyers say, from a forward-looking incentives-based perspective here, this back at UChicago Law School is what we would call law and economics. From an incentives-instilling perspective there, wouldn't you want the IVF clinics here? Wouldn't you want the fertility clinics to be incentivized to take great care of their underlying embryos? Do you really want them to be off the hook for legal, li for legal liability when it comes to destroying, to negligently dropping embryos, things like that? So, so there's all sorts of logical perversions here when it comes to what the left is saying about this Alabama Supreme Court opinion, which again is a basic matter of statutory interpretation. It's just remarkably straightforward there. All of it ultimately comes down. And this is what's really going on here. All of this ultimately comes down 
to the fact that abortion is the great secular sacrament for the left, for the American left, and they will never, ever yield or cede an inch to those of us who stand like the American founders stood, like God himself stood, for the inherent moral dignity, indeed the sanctity, to use the term of the day here, of human life. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.